just a few more studies together in Zechariah. we got some work to do tonight. So I hope you came ready to dig in, roll up your sleeves, get a little messy. This is uh, some of the most amazing prophecy, I believe, in the Old Testament. I know I've said that before. But this is incredible. It's beyond belief from a human natural perspective. And when you see this and understand it, you'll know what I'm talking about. First of all, we need to remember that uh, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, means the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. But between the blessings and the appointed times, it can seem as though the Lord has forgotten. Perhaps that's never happened to you. But for me, between times of great blessing, between times of great mountaintop experiences, and and those times where I just know the Lord is with me and walking with me and, and guiding me, between those blessings and then the next appointed time the Lord has for me, sometimes it can be quiet. Sometimes it can be downright dark. And oftentimes, we have to be taken through a valley of the shadow, even a valley of the shadow of death, before we can come out the other side. Shepherds have to do that from time to time with their sheep. Take them into the valley of the shadow of death. Lead them through, bring them out the other side. Did you know, by the way, that shepherds find their place in the Bible over a hundred times? Sheep actually show up another 185 times. Which makes sense because there's typically more sheep than there are shepherds. From Abraham all the way to David to Bethlehem's shepherds in the fields on the night of Jesus' birth, the scriptures are replete with the presence of shepherds. And like every time we turn around. And it's so ironic because they were the lowest of the lower class in Israel. They were not the important people. They were not the ones that you would talk about. As a matter of fact, I would imagine there were plenty of, of professions in Israel, even in Jesus' day or back in earlier times, that were far more prestigious that are never mentioned in Scripture at all. And yet shepherds are there. I think God has a heart for shepherds. I think God has a heart for shepherds because shepherds reflect the heart of God in the care and the compassion that they have to show for the sheep, in the defense of their sheep, in the protection and the feeding and the pasturing of their sheep, they reflect so much the heart of God. So it's not surprising. Keep your finger in Zechariah. Before we even read one verse, go over to Psalm 22. It is not surprising that in back-to-back-to-back psalms, David presents Messiah as a shepherd. And what we see is, beginning in Psalm 22, three aspects of our shepherd king, of our shepherd God. And the first one is the good shepherd. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the good shepherd. Not Psalm 23. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the good shepherd. Psalm 22, verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Well, those are the words of the Good Shepherd on the cross at Calvary. A little further down, verse 6, he says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of of men, and despised by the people. Again, that's the Good Shepherd hanging on the cross of Calvary. A bit further down, verse Let's go to verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That would happen on the cross. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. So brokenhearted was the Good Shepherd on the cross of Calvary. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, he says. My tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me and evil, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Exactly as happened to the good shepherd on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so in Psalm 22, we read the psalm of the Good Shepherd. What He did in His first coming. The Good Shepherd who came to die. And for those who hear His voice and who follow Him right now, He's no longer the Good Shepherd. Now He's the Great Shepherd. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What name is that? Christ. For the sake of the name of Christ, all Christians are called to follow in the path of righteousness. It's not for your sake, by the way. Do you realize that? It's not for your sake that you're called to be righteous. It's for His It's not for you that God says, I want you to obey me, to be holy like me. It's for His name's sake, so that when people see you following Him, and see you consistently obeying Him, they'll say, wow, that's that's a picture of Jesus. The contrary is when believers say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and then go their own way, and besmirch the name of Jesus. Besmirch is a good word we just don't use enough. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, see, no Israelite could say that. They could say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll pray to you back at the temple in Jerusalem. Because that's where His presence was. But to say you are with me, only a few radicals like David would make a comment like that, recognizing that God's Spirit truly was with David. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know the psalm. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All the days of my life. In this age, this is the age of the great shepherd. Jesus, by His Spirit, leading us, guiding us, restoring us. Even taking us through the valley of the shadow of death, dark and desperate places, but on the way up to eternal life. Psalm 23 is now. Psalm 22 was then, when the good shepherd came to give his life for the sheep. Now the great shepherd walks with his sheep, but when he returns, he comes back as the chief shepherd. Chapter 24, Psalm 24 Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Verse 3. And who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. Well, who's that? There's none other than Jesus. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face. Even Jacob. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It's the psalm of the King of glory. The psalm of the coming of the chief shepherd who died as the good shepherd. Now leads as the great shepherd, but comes again as the chief shepherd. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5, 
verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He says that to people who are in positions of shepherding right now. Those who shepherd, who lead, who care for a flock in the same way that Christ cares for His people. So shepherds are everywhere. Because shepherds portray in a very gentle, kind, beautiful, and precious way, they portray the compassion and love of God for His flock, for His people. What's that all got to do with Zechariah, Rick? Nine times, the Holy Spirit inspired Zechariah the prophet with the shepherd image. Nine times throughout these 14 chapters, the shepherd shows up. For the first time, he shows up in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. As we looked at last week, where the prophet points out the absence of shepherding and bad shepherding, both going on among his people Israel. By contrast, in chapter 10, verse 8, and John, I don't even know if I have this thing on. Is this on? It's not? Okay, wait. Let me try it now. Is it on now? Can you hear me now? Could you hear me through that? Should I do the intro again? Let's go back. This thing keeps pulling on me too. Oh, this is annoying. Jesus did not have to deal with these. Of course, I'm not Jesus, so there you go. He points out in Zechariah 10 verses 2 and 3, both the absence of shepherding and bad shepherding. And by contrast, in verse 8 of chapter 10, we saw the Lord acting the part of the shepherd, whistling for His people. Whistling for His flock. The final shepherd image. We will see, not this week, not Sunday, perhaps next Wednesday night, we'll see in chapter 13, verse 7, which is a direct prophecy of the Good Shepherd. Remember the Good Shepherd being Jesus in His first coming. Zechariah 13, verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man. My associate, declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And Jesus quoted this, you know, on the night of His betrayal. He told His apostles, this is what's going to happen. When I am struck, the sheep will scatter. This is exactly what happened. Now the other six shepherd references in the book of Zechariah are all in chapter 11. So we had two in chapter 10, one in chapter 13, the rest right here in the chapter before us tonight. So I think we need to be ready for that. And and that's why I started out with looking at the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, because these are prophecies. This is an amazing oracle of the good shepherd. Now, tonight we go into a dark place. Chapter 11 is truly a valley of the shadow of of death throughout. It describes the denial of the Good Shepherd and it ends up describing the deceit of a worthless surrogate. For the purpose of our study, we're just going to view this in three parts. Part one, the ruin of Judea. The ruin of Judea. Verse one, chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. Or the forest of the vintage is also what that means. There is a sound of the shepherds' wail, for their glory is ruined. There is a sound of the young lion's roar, 
For the pride of the Jordan is ruined. This dark condemnation serves as an introduction to a prophecy play. You know the prophets acted out sometimes prophecies. The Lord gave prophecies through the people, through His prophets, in many portions and in many different ways. And in chapter 11, Zechariah is called upon by the Lord to act out a prophecy. And that's part of what makes this a little difficult to understand. If you don't realize that, you read it thinking, well, what's going on here? So know before we get into it, this is going to be acted out by the prophet. The Lord tells him to do it, and, and he does it. But here in the introduction, we note something. We see cedars. We see cypress trees. We see oak trees. Some think perhaps these are personifications that they, that they indicate the highest of people to the lowliest of people, the cypress or the cedar being the highest and the, the oak being the lowest. But the truth of the matter is, whether they are a personification of the people of Israel or not, this is absolutely a literal prophecy, for it was literally fulfilled. Lebanon, Bashan, and Jordan covered the breadth of the land. Describe and speak of the entirety of Israel, north to south. And it indicates here in these opening verses a total devastation of Israel's verdant vegetation. The shepherds wail because there's nowhere to take their flocks. The land is wiped out. The young lions roar and it's a roar of hunger because the beauty and the bounty of the land is completely laid waste. The word there for ruined. Their glory is ruined in verse 3 is Shaddad in the Hebrew and it means literally violently destroyed. The land is violently destroyed. A lot of people don't realize that the land in Jesus' day was beautiful. Very nearly tropical. There are aspects of Israel today that have returned to that tropical nature where palm trees grow uh, and, and fruit trees of all kinds are growing. And bananas and citrus orchards. and it, it's, it's beautiful. But in Jesus' day, it was described, and historians have described it, as just a lush green land. Incredibly fruitful and And beautiful until soon after his feet left the earth. And it became a wasteland. To the point that by the time you get a hundred, two, three, four, a thousand years, fifteen hundred years down the road from Jesus, most people typically think of, even today, think of the Holy Land as a desert waste. Because that's what it ended up becoming. That's what it looked like. Charles Feinberg says, nothing in the world is so disastrous as sin. If the devastation of Israel shows us anything, it ought to show us that. That sin is devastating. That sin is ruinous. It is not something to wink at, downplay, or trivialize. And yet we do, don't we? There are certain things we're cool with, you know. Certain words that are okay to use, certain shows that are okay to watch, certain books that are okay to read, movies that are okay to to enjoy, certain tastes that are okay to feed, drinks that are okay to drink. We look at these things and we go, but I'm holy in so many other areas. That this sin over here is just not, I mean, yeah, it's my struggle, it's my thing. You know, I struggle with that thing. Sin is ruinous. It is absolute destruction. 
It is devastation. And I don't know how God could have described this or showed this to us more plainly than in the devastation of the land of Israel after the people sinned. And He did it twice. The land was devastated after 586 B.C. for 70 years at life fallow. And the people came back and then they began to farm the land again and God blessed them. But again, after 70 AD, when Rome destroyed it, it was wiped out. And it was so bad at that time, and it got worse up to 135 AD, when it was completely destroyed by Rome, and the land was salted, and the Temple Mount was raised. Not raised as in raised up, but raised as in burned and flattened. And the land itself became unfarmable and a boggy, mosquito-infested waste. And that is sin. And if that's not a clear enough picture for us, how about Jesus on the cross? That is the end result of sin. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. But but, but, but if I give up my sin, what fun am I going to have? I'm just going to be one of those religious people with a long face singing old hymns. What, you mean like, oh, happy day? Happy day, happy day. When Jesus washed my sins away. You can't sing that with a frown. Well, some try. You're not supposed to. To destroy the works of the devil cost Jesus every last drop of his blood. That's how serious sin is. He didn't give his precious life for something that was no big deal. Sin is devastating. Now, note that, again, and I pointed this out throughout the writing of Zechariah, but it is so critical to understanding the prophecy. This is after the Babylonian exile. After the people have returned to the land, and now the Lord is warning of another ruin far worse than what had just taken place. Zechariah is prophesying forward, not backward. Now, some have tried to take Zechariah 11 and point it backward. Some liberal commentators have come along and said, no, this is just talking about history, stuff that happened prior to Zechariah. Even the Talmud, both the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, the the teachings of the Jewish people, the the tradition set down in writing, agrees that the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 11 must be looking forward. That it must be placed, get this, in the second temple period. Isaac ben Judah Abar Benal in the 13th century, a Jewish statesman, scholar, rabbi, wrote, To what purpose should God allow the prophet past events, which he had seen with his own eyes, which had occurred but a short time before, and above all, to do this in parables, which are only employed in reference to the future, to make events known before they happen. But with regard to the past, information is not conveyed in parables. This symbolical representation, as we will see in the rest of the chapter, cannot refer to the past and must predict what was to happen during the time of the Second Temple. When was that? The time of the Second Temple era goes from the building of the Second Temple to the destruction of the Second Temple, 515 B.C. to 70 A.D. That's the Second Temple era. This prophecy is fulfilled in that era, at least the bulk of this. 
Some of it is yet to come. This is the only time in history this prophecy could possibly have been fulfilled. And that is at the end of the Second Temple Era. Furthermore, the very context of Zechariah 11, in that it follows Zechariah 8, 9, and 10. I love the orderliness of that. It follows the discussion we've just been having in reading through those three chapters of the first coming of Messiah. What just ended in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9? Messiah on a colt, even the foal of a donkey. And those three chapters are the lead up to this. They are the time of the Good Shepherd in the days of the Second Temple. That's what we're looking at as we come to chapter 11. And all of this places the parable of Zechariah chapter 11 in the last week of Jesus' life. If we are after that point where he came riding in on a donkey, here's where the parable is given. After that prophecy. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, Pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. The son ha haragah in the Hebrew, which means pasture the sheep of slaughter. The Lord now says to Zechariah the prophet, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pasture the sheep of slaughter. Who are the sheep of slaughter? It's Israel. And I want you to act this out. So the Lord tells Zechariah to do this. I want you to take up the office of shepherd, of pasturing my flock, of shepherding my people. Verse 5. Those who buy and slay them and go unpunished, and each of those who sells them or who sell them says, Bless be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. Those who buy them and sell them, and, and truly you could add in there those who slay them, those who slaughter them. As we've seen, the Jewish people are oppressed. They are an afflicted people, both by their own bad shepherds, but also by those who buy and sell them, which is not their shepherds, it's the Gentile nations. And so verse 5, that's what he's talking about. These are a people who are being bought and sold from one kingdom to the next. First by Babylon, and then by the Medes and the Persians, and then by the, the Macedonian Greeks. They would be under the oppression, bought and sold and slain by the Gentile powers. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 7 says, All who came upon them have devoured them. And their adversaries have said, We're not guilty. Inasmuch as they have sinned against the Lord, who is the habitation of righteousness, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. What he's saying is that the Gentile nations who took out Israel felt justified. And that's exactly what he says again in verse 5. They say, blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. You know, I bought and sold Jewish people. God's blessing me. Verse 6. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power, and into the power of his king. And they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. Whose power? Rome. Now he's talking about Rome at this point. How do we know that? Because the Lord says they're going to fall into the power, each into the power of his king. Well, Judah didn't have a king. Judah had a governor, but the last king of Judah was wiped out by Babylon. So now Judah has no king, but they're going to fall into the power of the king. What king? The king of Judah's own choosing. 
John chapter 19 verse 14 says it was the day of preparation for the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, that is Pilate, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's their king. That is the chosen king that is referred to then in verse 6. The ruin of Judea precedes now the rejection of the Good Shepherd. Actually, the ruin of Judah would follow the rejection of the Good Shepherd, but it's, it's inferred, it's implied as the introduction, and now we come into this section, the rejection of the Good Shepherd, part 2. Verse 7, So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock, and I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor, and the other I called union, So I pastured or I fed or I cared for the flock. Zechariah is probably at this point role playing. He's taken up a position of shepherd and there in Jerusalem he's he's acting out the role. Whether or not he actually had sheep following him, I don't know. Or maybe little children in cute little sheep costumes like Leslie might have, I don't know. But he's, he's role playing here. Acting this out. And he himself is playing the role of the good shepherd of Israel's Messiah. He takes up two staffs, we're told in verse 7. Shepherds often did. Shepherds would often carry or have on hand two different staffs. Psalm 23, 4, as we read, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. We often think of the shepherd with that shepherd's crook. That that staff that hooks up over like a big candy cane, Right? But they had another one. They had the crook, which was for leading, you know, kind of redirecting the flock. If one got off, you could hook them, pull them back over, you know. Leading and feeding and caring for the flock. That's what the shepherd's crook was for, the staff. The rod was shorter. It was smaller. It had usually a a hard, knotty end on the top of it. And it was useful for throwing. And the shepherds were good at it. They were practiced at it. They could throw it at an animal, a wolf that would attack the sheep, or a lion that would come. And furthermore, it was short and it was blunt so that they could use it as an instrument of defense if they needed to. They could also use it as an instrument of discipline if they needed to for the straying sheep. Quack! Get back over here. (laughs) Okay. Didn't take much for the sheep to get it. He says, I'm taking two staffs. A staff and a rod, most likely. One he names favor, and the other one he names union. Favor in the Hebrew is noam. It means beauty. That staff would be representative of the favor of God that guards and keeps His chosen people, like a shepherd's staff. Looking after the people, keeping them close, and protecting them. The other staff is called union, or koblim, in the Hebrew. Which means literally binders. When you put binders on my sheep, what it refers to is the connectedness, the unity of the Jewish people all together in one place as one flock. But note in the middle of verse 7, he uses the phrase, hence the afflicted of the flock. That indicates that while the majority of the sheep were going to be led to the slaughter, there would at least remain a remnant. The afflicted of the flock are the remnant. There would be some left over, a poor remnant. The 
point is the work of the good shepherd would not be in vain. He would watch his flock. Many would be led to the slaughter. But some would, would, would remain. Some always have remained. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 9 points this out. Toward the end of, of days, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is as tested. They will call on my name, I will answer them, I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. That is a tragic verse. It's glorious in that a third are saved. It is tragic in that two-thirds are not. Two-thirds are sheep led to the slaughter. One-third would be the afflicted. Hence, the, note the afflicted, the, the phrase is literally therefore, or look at, the afflicted of the flock. Going on, verse 8. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul was weary of me. What? Verse 9, then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Huh? Okay, he's in this role, right? It's doubtful that Zechariah, playing the role of the good shepherd, annihilated anybody. Okay, I'm not thinking that that's what went on. The idea is he acted out their removal from office. He acted out the removal of under-shepherds. He fired them. He fired three shepherds. In this act that he's portraying, annihilated in the Hebrew means to cut off or to kick out. The word impatient, he says, my soul was impatient with them. The word impatient is important. It's katsar and it means grieved. My soul's grieved. The shepherd, the, the good shepherd, is looking at his fellow shepherds and he's going, they're grieving me. I recall Jesus, the good shepherd, in Matthew 17, 17, saying, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus was impatient with the shepherds in the land. Those who were leading his people, those who were among his people, it was frustrating for Jesus. It was tiresome. It grieved his heart to see how the people were treated and how they reacted. Just as it does Zechariah in the role play. But also it says, note this, and their soul also was weary of me, not strong enough. The word in the Hebrew is bakal and it means their soul detested me. They loathed me. They abhorred me. No wonder he cut them off. No wonder he, he kicked them out. While the representative good shepherd was grieved at his or with his subordinates, they detested him. And of course you may recall Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember that when you take it on the chin for Jesus. If ever someone, you know, puts you off, gets angry with you, is frustrated with you, is put out with you simply because you mentioned Jesus, remember that the world hated Him long before it hated you. But who are the three hateful, abhorrent, loathing shepherds who are cut off in one month? That is, that is, I mean, it's the stuff of prophecy. I annihilated the three shepherds in one month. Now, Feinberg says there are easily 40 different answers as to what this means. 
There have been some wild ideas thrown around about who are these three shepherds who are so loathsome toward the chief shepherd, toward the good shepherd here. Who are these guys? I'll give you three answers, three possibilities that are all pretty strong. I like the third one best. One, there are those who say these are the three ruling empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Macedonian Greek Empire. That these were three shepherds, that they were rulers, that they had authority, oppressive authority over the people, and I cut them off. It's possible. If it's one month, the Jewish month would be 30 days, divided into three, that's ten uh, three uh, sections of ten days each, and ten days, ten is the number of government in the Bible. So if you want to apply it to three governments across a month, divided into thirds, that, that's one way to think about it, perhaps. Three ruling empires. Others, uh, many rabbis have said, no, it's three religious offices. Priests, scribes, and elders. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So perhaps that's what we're talking about here. I cut off the three shepherds, the priests, the scribes, and the elders because they weren't doing their job. I like the old rabbi's explanation the best. The older rabbis. The more ancient rabbis believed and taught that this good shepherd character here would cut off and hold in himself three ruling offices, prophet, priest, and king. And I think that's what we're talking about. That he would cut off prophet and priest and king. The good shepherd rendered all three of them unnecessary. Why? Because the prophet and the priest and the king were all three mediating offices. They were offices of the mediator. They were were go-betweens. The priest was a go-between between man and God. The prophet stood between man and God. The king would rule between man and God. And when the good shepherd came on the scene, he cut that off because it was no longer necessary. He became all three in and of himself. Of the priest, Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Of the prophets, you know this verse, Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days God has spoken to us in his Son. The prophets are no longer necessary. What about modern day prophets, Rick? Modern day prophets are different. Modern day prophets are encouragers and exhorters and sometimes rebukers. But modern day prophets speak the word already given. The previous prophets spoke the word of the Lord interceding for the people with the Lord standing as go-betweens. Modern day prophets are not your go-between. If someone comes along and and they're a legitimate prophet from the Lord today, they are not between you and the Father. Only Jesus is between you and the Father. There is no priest who stands between you and the Father. Only Jesus is between me and the Father. And as far as the King is concerned, well, we already read in John 19.14, on the day of preparation for the Passover, the sixth hour, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your King. Once Jesus came into this world, He took over all three offices so that no longer are they necessary. And David Barron says these three offices were on the testimony of the prophets to be united in the person of Messiah. And if Israel had received him the first time, they would have found in him their prophet, their priest, and their king. 
And so Zechariah, in this role of good shepherd, says, I cut them off. I cut off the three shepherds as unnecessary. Now, they're cut off in a month, he says. Now, this is, this is representative. And so, as it represents, it could anticipate the time, roughly, between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension. In one month, it was done. They were cut off. Once Jesus ascended, it was a done deal. Forty days was the exact time, so a little over a month, perhaps. But the bottom line is, Jesus came. And with Him, all mediation between man and God would remain. Only with Jesus, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And if I have any singular problem with my Catholic brothers and sisters, that's it. Too many go-betweens. I gotta pray through the saints. I gotta pray through Joseph. I gotta pray through Mary. I gotta pray through my priest. I gotta go to my priest to confess, to get it to the priest, to go to God as the mediator. No, you don't. Jesus Christ alone is your mediator between you and the Father. After Jesus ascended, no prophet, priest, or king could intercede for Israel anymore. No wonder the second temple fell. Think about that. Why would God allow the temple to be raised again, to be wiped out once again? Because now, as of Jesus' sacrifice at Calvary, no sacrifice in the temple would be necessary for salvation. Or even for the putting off of salvation, for for atonement, for covering. Because Jesus had done it. And by the way, regarding the end of verse 9 there, what is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left in one... Who are left eat one another's flesh? They did. They did. That's exactly what took place in Jerusalem during the siege of Rome. Cannibalism. Simply to stay alive. I've actually shared some of those stories before. I won't go into it tonight. Verse 10. I took my staff, favor, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. Verse 11. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. He's acting this out. And the afflicted, the helpless there among him, started to get it. Started to understand this is the word of the Lord. Now you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did God break a covenant? I cut favor in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. Did God break His covenant with Israel? No. No, don't misunderstand this. With the rejection of the Good Shepherd, God's favor for Israel was broken. His divine protection over Israel, the nation. But the covenant spoken of here is not a covenant between God and the Jewish people. It's the covenant between God and all the peoples. Note that language. The phrase all the peoples is never used with regard to Israel. All the peoples means the Gentile nations. And so the breaking of the covenant is the breaking of an agreement with the Gentile nation, so to speak, that they would not completely devastate His people. And up to that point, God would not allow a complete devastation of His people. They had His favor. They had His protection. When favor was broken, with the death of the Good Shepherd, that Zechariah is acting out, are you with me on that? He's acting this whole thing out. When favor was broken, 
So was the agreement that God had himself with the nations that he would not allow them to completely devastate the people. But now favor is broken. And even in the Babylonian captivity, the people held together, didn't they? Though they were all taken off, they were taken off together. They dwelled together. They remained together. They were Jews together. And they came back to the land together. And they began to re-inhabit the land together. There was that union that they were protected. And note that, that the staff called union is not yet broken. Just the favor. So with the, the demise, the rejection of the good shepherd, the first thing that happens is favor is lifted. See, that's what happens when you reject Jesus. I know I talk about this a lot. But that's what happens when a nation rejects Jesus. Favor is broken. And when the favor of God is broken, watch, that's when a nation falls. It happened with Great Britain. As a matter of fact, it's happened with every nation that ever had any belief system based in the Christ and then began to pull back. And I believe we're seeing it happen in our nation today. So the staff, union, not yet broken, but favor was broken. But did you notice who it was here who recognized what Zechariah was doing with this prophetic word? It was the afflicted, the helpless. It was the poor of the flock. The believing remnant saved out of the flock of slaughter. And this has immediate and distant implications for Israel. Speaking of the the flock, there were those right there, the poor, the afflicted, who recognized it was the word of the Lord. Not the leaders, but the poor among the people saw what Zechariah was doing and went, this is a prophecy. And they got it. Furthermore, later on, there will be that remnant, that afflicted flock of Israel that will see and will get it. They will begin to understand, this is the word of the Lord. I have no doubt that during the tribulation, Perhaps even in the lead up to it, perhaps even right now, that there are good Jewish people studying Zechariah and they're starting to get it. Some who do get it immediately become Messianic Jews. They, they, they become part of the church. But there will be a huge number of Jewish people when the tribulation gets underway who will recognize all these prophecies as having been fulfilled. They'll see where they are. They will know the word of the Lord has been fulfilled. But note this, and think about this practically. It is always those who are watching Jesus who get what he's doing. Those who are not watching Jesus don't understand. Or they miss what he's doing. That's why I continue to say this to you all by way of encouragement. I love that you're here. And I love that we're in the word together. Because you're watching Jesus, not me. But you're listening to His Word and you're keeping your eyes fixed on Him. And when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you don't miss what He's doing. I miss what He's doing in my life when I'm not looking. When my eyes are down. When my my eyes are on myself. When my eyes are on my family. When my eyes are on the cares of this world. I miss what He's doing. I don't get to see it. But man, when my eyes are on Jesus, I am overwhelmed with what He's doing. And I get the Word of the Lord. That's what the afflicted here got because their eyes were on the prophet. They're looking. So they get it. Eyes fixed on Him. Micah chapter 7, verse 7, As for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. When? When I'm watching. When I'm expecting. 
Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Someone says, I never hear the word of the Lord. I never hear God speak. Have you been watching? Are your eyes on him? Keep your eyes on Jesus and you will begin to hear him. Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an eagerness there, a watchfulness that Paul, of course, refers to in 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved His appearing. How do you love His appearing? You're looking for Him to come. You're standing at the door. It's like when I drive in the driveway. I love this. And this is kind of a typical thing at my house. Drive in the driveway, open the garage door. As I'm pulling in the garage, the garage door into the house always opens and there's David. It's just that's what he does. Makes my day. This afternoon I had to go home. I was trying to get out of the office, trying to get out of here by about 3. I ended up leaving at 3.30. And the staff may have recognized, Rick seems a little rushed here. He he seems like he really wants to get out of here. I did. Why? Because I wanted to see David's little face in the door. Because there's something about someone who loves your appearing. I, I love driving in because I get to see that little face. You know, God loves when His people are waiting and looking for Him. When we're standing at the crack of the door for the garage door to open and Jesus to come, that's, that's what loving His appearing means. And it's that same kind of affection I know that the Father has as He sees our little faces looking up and waiting for Him. So keep watch and you won't miss anything. Look away. You might miss something valuable. And speaking of watching, we've come to a part of the prophecy that is so amazing it catches the breath. Don't miss it. Verse 12. I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces my second staff, Union, to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. This is absolutely stunning. Now before we get to the New Testament interpretation of this, understand what is going on in Zach time. Alright, in Zachariah's time. See, after performing this act of this, of this shepherd, now he asks for his wages. He's still in the role. The people understand this, but he asks for wages for his shepherding services. I don't know what the attitude of the people was. Perhaps they were just kind of playing along. Perhaps they thought it was kind of funny. So someone gave him 30 shekels, which was a paltry sum. Maybe they thought they were, again, being... You know, tongue-in-cheek. Give him 30 shekels. Let's see what he does with it. It's funny. You know, good. I don't know what they were doing. But somebody gave Zechariah 30 shekels, and immediately the Lord says, throw it to the potter. That magnificent price, which is sarcastic, by the way, at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver, and I threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. He asked for his wages. The word wages there, sakar, means reward for hire. You hire me, you pay me. 
The wage that God was looking for, that if the people were really thinking, would have picked up on, the wage in this prophetic performance was repentance. The spiritual fruit of the labor of the prophet here would have been their repentance, their faith, their love for the Lord. That's what he would want. That's all he asked for in wages from us. You want to pay God? Pay Him in your faith. Pay Him in your love. Pay Him in your obedience. Pay Him in your desire to live for Him. That's the wage that He's looking for. And the prophet says, pay me my wages, but if not, that's cool. And what he got instead of a good wage was a joke. Perhaps in the mind of the people. You see, Exodus 21 verse 32 tells us, If an ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. You have a little accident, one of your servants is out there working in the field, and an ox gores him and kills him. The owner of the servant gets 30 shekels of silver for the pierced servant. Do you get it? Now turn to Matthew chapter 26. Keep your finger in Zechariah and go to Matthew 26. The slave gored to death. And God tells Zechariah, throw it to the potter. So Zechariah finds a potter. Uh, Apparently there in the temple courts. He literally throws the 30 shekels to this potter in the temple, tossing the coins to him. Watch how it is fulfilled. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? What's he doing? He's asking for wages. Wages for hire. And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Side note, Judas betrayed Jesus when he no longer could make anything off him. And we know he was making money off Jesus because John tells us he was ripping Jesus off during the entire three years of his ministry. That Judas was in charge of the money bags and was pilfering the money bags, taking the money as he needed it. And when he could no longer do that, when he saw his time was short, he sought to get anything he could out of this Jesus And it was pure greed that drove him to it, which is why, brothers and sisters, we often talk about be careful with whatever money God gives you. Don't make your life about money. Because greed will gore you. It certainly pierced the heart of Judas. From then on, verse 16, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Turn over to Matthew 27. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the, of the of people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse, and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver, note this, into the temple. Where was Zechariah when he gave the thirty pieces of silver to the potter? In the temple. Right. But go on. 
He threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. He hanged himself because there is a sorrow that is a worldly sorrow that leads to death, Paul says. There is a godly sorrow that leads to life and repentance. Just being sorry for our sin, being sorry that we've done something to hurt someone, it depends on what kind of sorrow we're talking about. If it's selfish sorrow, oh, woe is me, I'm such a bad dude, it will never get you to the feet of Jesus. If it's godly sorrow, what have I done? Lord, forgive me. That's a sorrow that leads to repentance and to salvation. Peter had that sorrow. Peter betrayed Jesus. Peter had a godly sorrow. Judas betrayed Jesus and had a worldly sorrow, and so he hanged himself. Acts chapter 1 says it was so bad that it literally bent his body in half and his intestines gushed out. I didn't say it, the Bible said that. I just like to mention that, you know, just for the graphic effect of it. Okay, so verse 6. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. See, they knew. This was blood money. The price of betrayal. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood. Acts 1.18 calls it Hakeldama. Hakeldama, the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, note that, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Two discrepancies. Number one, Matthew ascribes the prophecy to Jeremiah. What do you do with that? It always saddens me when a commentator takes something like that and goes, well, it must have been a scribal error. As if the Lord allows error to remain in the Scriptures. Either the Bible is flawless or it is not. Well, yeah, but there's translations and down through the years something could have slipped in or maybe there's a little mistake, blah, blah, blah. I sound like Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana. I don't know why. (laughs) The, The stuff in Scripture, gang, is true. And my attitude has become, over the years of studying through this, always seek to find out why. Because it's not as easy as just saying scribal error. Why does Matthew say Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled? Well, for one reason... The scroll of the prophets, the Nevi'im, began with Jeremiah. And because the rabbis in Jesus' day and at this time didn't have chapter and verse like we have, they would refer to, okay, turn to Jeremiah, and they would pull out the scroll of Jeremiah, and then they would find the place where Zechariah wrote this. But oftentimes, and it is clear throughout rabbinical literature, oftentimes they would refer to Jeremiah to speak of any of the prophets. Well, Jesus did that, didn't he? When he was talking about Torah law, he could quote something out of Deuteronomy and say, Moses said, and he ascribes it all to Moses, because Moses, well, Moses wrote Torah. So, in this place, we see him referring to Jeremiah. I have no problem with that, that Jeremiah is the first prophet, and the rabbis are referring to the author of the book of the scroll. But there's a better reason. A better reason that Jeremiah himself is called out. You see, the second discrepancy is that Zechariah never said anything about the potter's field. Zechariah 
Remember what he said? Throw the thirty. Uh, throw it to the potter. Just throw it to the potter. God doesn't say where the potter is. Just give the thirty pieces of silver to the potter. He finds him in the temple and throws him the thirty pieces of silver. Zechariah doesn't mention the potter's field. One other thing to note, by the way, this is something our English translations do that can confuse us. When you see in Matthew 27, verse 9, the words are all in small caps. That's to highlight that prophecy is being fulfilled. But sometimes we look at the small caps and go, yeah, but that doesn't say exactly what was said before. That's not word for word. Well, it may not have been intended to be word for word. Matthew here is giving an interpretation. He is giving the interpretation of the prophecy. Matthew probably didn't write it in small caps. He just wrote it. Okay? So there's more here that's going on. And what's happening, and understand this, Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, does something absolutely accurate and reliable and profound. He pulls together two prophecies of this one event. The prophecy of Zechariah that is clearly laid out before us and a prophecy of Jeremiah about the potter. And what he's doing, Matthew, here in Matthew 27, is he's pulling both these together and saying, this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy as well as the other guy who he doesn't mention, Zechariah. He quotes, he refers to Zechariah, but he calls out Jeremiah because both prophecies are fulfilled here. What are you talking about? Listen. The place the priests and the elders bought, why was it called the potter's field? Because it had been called the potter's field for over 600 years. That was the name of this field in the days of Jeremiah. And in those days, it, it was a place right outside the potsherd gate of Jerusalem. It was in the Hinnom Valley. As a matter of fact, we know exactly where Akeldama is. You can stand up on, a, on an outlook above the city of David, look down toward the Hinnom Valley, and I can point out to you right where Hakeldama is. It's in the valley, the Hinnom Valley. Right where Judas hanged himself. It's also called the Valley of Tophet, where the people sacrificed to Molech. It's an ugly, awful valley. It's the Valley of Gehenna, which Jesus used as a picture of hell. Literal hell, and he used it as a picture. This... This potter's field was there for 600 years in the Hinnom Valley. And here in this place, Jeremiah was told by the Lord to give the prophecy of the broken pottery. To take a pot and go out. Well, let me read it to you. Jeremiah 19, verse 10. You are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you. He took a group of men out the potsherd gate into the Hinnom Valley, into the place, the potter's field, held up the jar as the Lord told him to, and smashed it on the ground, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Just so will I break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired, and they will bury in Tophet, the Hinnom Valley, because there is no other place for burial. Guess where all the bodies were tossed after Rome wiped out Israel, wiped out Jerusalem? The Hinnom Valley. The potter's field. And it's in that field that what Matthew is saying, what he's calling out as he writes this chapter, prior to A.D. 70, Matthew is saying, this is about to happen. The fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy is coming right on the heels of the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. The prophecy of the pottery, 
The prophecy of the 30 shekels given to the potter. They're both included in this. Matthew draws them together. Zechariah's parable and Jeremiah's prophecy. And Judas and the chief priests and the elders worked inadvertently together to do both. The good shepherd was sold for 30 shekels of silver, the price of a servant killed by the goring of an ox. Wages. 30 shekels of silver were Jesus' wages for all of His love, compassion, and healing in His ministry. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord who Himself died and took those wages so that you and I don't have to. And so the Good Shepherd did give His life for the sheep. And the shekels, again, were thrown into the temple and then applied. Judas threw them into the temple just as Zechariah threw them in the temple to the potter. And they were applied by the Pharisees, by the chief priests, to the potter's field. Amazing. Judas died, as I said, in the potter's field, Acts 1, 18 and 19. Judas, whom Jesus, by the way, called the son of perdition. In John 17, 12. The son of perdition, which means the son of waste. What a waste. He committed suicide by hanging. Keep that in mind, the son of perdition. Looking at verse 14, Then, then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Why does Zechariah wait to break the second staff? Here's the deal. The first staff represented the first breaking. That is the breaking of God's protective favor over Israel. The second staff represented the final breaking, that is the breaking of the unity of Israel as a nation. There was a span of time there between when God lifted His hand of favor and when the nation was completely broken. God's hand was lifted as Jesus left the earth. God's hand was lifted as Jesus was rejected by His own people and crucified, favor lifted. But it would be, what, 30, 40 years before union was broken. And so the prophecy is true and the prophecy is absolutely literal. It's amazingly played out. Before we come out of this dark valley, there is one more shepherd we have to deal with tonight. We talked about the ruin of Judea. We talked about the rejection of the good shepherd. Number three, final one, hang with me, the rule of the worthless shepherd. Verse 15. The Lord said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. What's that? Same equipment as that of the good shepherd. The equipment's the same. It's the heart that's different. So now take the equipment of the foolish shepherd, for behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. Who is this foolish and worthless shepherd? The word foolish there, Avale. Avale in the Hebrew sounds like evil. Avale means foolishness, but it's wicked foolishness. 
It's foolishness to the point of, of rebellion. So this wicked, foolish shepherd, the word worthless. Now this is where I'm interested. It's, it's Elil. And Elil means good for nothing. This good for nothing, worthless, useless shepherd. Paul calls him the son of perdition. You remember what Judas was called by Jesus? Son of perdition. Why? Because I believe the same spirit that inspired that worked in Judas to betray Christ is the spirit that Paul talks about when he refers to the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, which is the same as the worthless, the foolish shepherd. It means waste, destruction, worthlessness, son of worthlessness. Daniel calls him the little horn and the king who does as he pleases. John refers to him simply as the beast from the sea or Antichrist. The worthless shepherd is Antichrist. And Jesus said, and here's the deal, those who reject the good shepherd will choose for themselves another shepherd. A worthless shepherd. John 5.43, I've come in my Father's name, Jesus said, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And Jesus was, in fact, at that time referring to Antichrist. Now you need to understand something. We just jumped at least 2,000 years. I mean, literally, between verse 14, I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. That happened back in AD 70. We just jumped all the way from there to beyond, actually, our present day. I think not far beyond, but beyond where we are right now. We jumped all this distance. Suddenly in verse 15, now we're talking about the foolish shepherd who didn't come in Jesus' day, but who is yet to come, this one called Antichrist. Why? Why does the prophecy leap from the rejection of Jesus to the acceptance of Antichrist? Because both are dealing with the time frame of Israel as a people. Israel as a nation. That at the time Israel was a nation, they rejected, as a nation, they rejected Jesus. Now, not every Jew rejected Jesus, you know that. The entire first century church was Jewish first. But the nation rejected Jesus and crucified Him. And it is the nation that will again accept another shepherd, a worthless shepherd, Antichrist, when he comes on the scene. Daniel makes the same jump across the centuries. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. He says after 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, speaking of Christ's crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Rome destroyed the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. And even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And ever since then to present day, there has been war and desolations. But right there... At the end of Daniel 9.26, you jump all the way to the end of end times. Verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9 says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many. Who? The prince who is to come. The prince of the people who destroyed the city back then, the prince who is to come, is going to make a covenant with the people. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the sevens, that is in the middle of the tribulation, the seven year period... He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That speaks of the wiping out of the destruction of Antichrist. 
But you see what Daniel did? He talks about the, the rejection of Jesus, and then he jumps and talks about the acceptance of Antichrist. I've told you before, Antichrist is not going to come with a t-shirt saying, Hello, my name is Antichrist. <laughs> He's not going to have little horns. He's not going to have a little spike tail and a little fork, you know, pitchfork running around. He's not going to wear a red suit. He is going to be an orator. He is going to be beloved by the nations of the world. And Israel will trust him. I believe Muslims will trust him. The world will say, He's our guy. This man of peace who can make it all happen. The Bible tells us he will feed on the flock. That he will devour Israel even to the point of tearing at the last bits of meat off of their hoofs. Revelation 13.7 says it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. This worthless shepherd. But his right eye... The right eye, this speaks of intelligence. His right eye will be blind to the truth. So kind of like the CIA, his intelligence is going to be off a bit. And his arm, which speaks of his strength and his might, his arm will be withered by, what does he say? His arm will be withered by the sword. A sword will be on his arm. What sword? Sword of the word. The sword that proceeds from the mouth of Jesus in His glorious return. The return of the chief shepherd. Revelation 19.15 I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against Him who sat on the horse and against His army. And the beast was seized. And with Him the false prophet who performed the signs in His presence by which He deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped His image. The two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. John saw the end of Antichrist. John saw the destruction of the worthless shepherd. Now let me ask you this. How many shekels were Judas' wages? 30. How literally was the prophetic word that we just looked at tonight, how literally was it fulfilled in Jesus' time? Exactly. Exactly. Precisely. What does that tell us about the coming of the chief shepherd and the worthless shepherd? It should tell us that it's going to be literally fulfilled exactly as we've seen with every other prophecy in Scripture, literally fulfilled. It's going to happen, just as he said. I don't believe we'll be here to see Antichrist. I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm among the afflicted few, the helpless ones who is looking for Jesus. I'm standing at the door waiting for the garage door to open. That's where I'm at. And that's where he calls all of us to be. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. And He is coming. And all of this will be fulfilled literally exactly as He said it would be. So I'm going to leave you with one final thought for tonight. Who has your ear? Jesus said, If you reject Me, you will accept another. If you reject the one who has come in His Father's name, you will accept the one who comes in His own name. If you reject Jesus Christ, you will accept the beast. Antichrist. Who has your ear? Which shepherd will you listen to? Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He also says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd. 
who gave his life for the sheep. Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd. Walking with us even now, your shepherd's crook to to guard us. Lord, your your shepherd's rod to discipline us if we need discipline and to, to defend us where we need defending. You're the great shepherd. And we know and we believe that the day is soon upon us when the chief shepherd will return in all his glory. Before that happens, there is this worthless shepherd coming on the scene. God, be praised that your word tells us that we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. That your word tells us we will be caught up before he comes on the scene. But Lord, I pray until that last second that we will spend our lives and our breath speaking the gospel. Speaking the truth of the Good Shepherd and what you did. Showing people even the very things that we saw tonight. The precise fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus. Increase Jesus our faith so that we can increase in the spreading of this message. Thank you for all you're doing, Lord. You are our shepherd and we bow the knee to you. In Jesus' name, amen.